At this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21 through the end of the chapter. Well, let's give ear now to the Word of God, beginning in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophet, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help and blessing this morning, let's turn back to the passage we read from Romans chapter 3. And... Lord willing, this will be our final sermon on the third chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans as we focus our attention upon verse 31. Do we then make void the law through faith? Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. So the apostle here is bringing a possible objection or perhaps a false conclusion that could be drawn by somebody who agrees with what he said thus far, he brings this hypothetical question, do we then make void the law through faith? Is that the natural consequence of the gospel that he's just declared in the end of chapter 1 into chapter 2 and concluding in chapter 3? this doctrine of justification by faith alone, this gospel of which he says that he's not ashamed to declare it. The power of God unto salvation. If, if we properly understood it, does that mean that we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not, he says. Certainly not. If that's our conclusion, or if that's our objection, we're misguided. Certainly not. No question about it. Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish 
the law. We establish the law. Now here in context, as I've already alluded to, Paul has been outlining what he calls my gospel, which is the true gospel. Hopefully it's your gospel too. It's the only gospel, the gospel of God's free grace through Jesus Christ. And in particular, Paul has been addressing the biblical doctrine of justification by faith alone. That our right standing with God in the courts of heaven is founded and grounded exclusively upon the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. That God requires righteousness for eternal life. He requires perfect obedience, perfect righteousness unto eternal life. He's going to emphasize that in chapter 5. But he's already said it in, in, as many, in, a, in his own way. Verse 13 of chapter 2, For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So he says you need a perfect righteousness. But man is filled not with righteousness, but with unrighteousness. In fact, if you look at the whole human race, as Paul looks at it in light of some quotations from the Psalms, he says there is none righteous, not one. No one does good. No one performs the righteousness that God requires unto eternal life. And so we're all damned and condemned in ourselves, in our own unrighteousness. And we can suppress that truth in unrighteousness. We can put our fingers in our ears. We can pretend that God doesn't require this perfect righteousness or that somehow, as the Jews pretended, that they had attained to that righteousness. We can play all the games we want. The fact of the matter is that on Judgment Day, Paul says, there is no partiality with God. Verse 11 of chapter 2, no partiality. The Gentiles will be judged by the work of the law on their hearts. The, the tiny remnant of the image of God that influences their conscience, they know they've done wrong, they'll be judged by that. Uh, those who have the Word of God, the law of God, will be judged by that. And he says judgment will be rendered. Judgment will be rendered. And he says that they'll be judged according to my gospel. Verse 16, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So you can go around like a, a whitewashed tomb all you want, like the Pharisees, but inside there's dead men's bones and all uncleanness. God knows your thoughts. He knows your heart. He will bring to light the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, Paul says, according to my gospel. So there's no hope of being legally right with God by our own good works. There is filthy rags, as Isaiah 64, 6 tells us. We need God's righteousness. We need the righteousness that Christ has accomplished through His redemption. We see that in chapter 3, verse 24. We need this righteousness from God through Christ that we would be justified freely by His grace as a free gift, not something we've earned, not our own righteousness, but a free gift of God through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, Christ through His sufferings and through His obedience unto the cross, through His resurrection, He has finished the work of redemption. He has purchased righteousness and eternal life for all who put their trust in Him. God has set Him forth as a propitiation by His blood. In other words, a propitiation turns away God's wrath and obtains His favor. 
So he's preaching Christ as the only means of being reconciled to God and of having a righteousness that is requisite for eternal life. Christ is the redemption. Christ is the propitiation through His obedience, through His blood received by faith. And we're told, verse 25, it demonstrates His righteousness because God's been passing over the sins of His people ever since He clothed Adam and Eve with the garments after they sinned. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, all these Old Testament saints have been sinners, but God has passed over their sins, forgiven them, and justified them, and now Christ has come. And He's paid the price. Therefore, there's a a just and righteous basis for God to forgive Abraham prior to the cross, or to forgive you or me by faith after the cross. God's righteousness is demonstrated And it's demonstrated when Christ paid the price and fulfilled all righteousness through the redemption by His blood. That God might be just and the justifier. Not sweeping it under the rug, but justly paying for and removing all of our sins through the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says that this is a ground for humility, not for boasting, not boasting at an individual level, not the kind of patriotic self-righteousness and superiority that we talked about previously in a sermon, but humility, individually, humility at a corporate level. And he, he sums it up, he says, whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised, uh, verse 30, there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. And so it's faith and faith alone, excluding all works, all personal works, all personal performance. Verse 28, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Even the faith that justifies is simply receiving Christ's righteousness And then on the basis of Christ's righteousness alone, God declares the believer to be righteous. So this is the biblical doctrine of justification. It undergirds the biblical gospel that Paul is preaching. And this is what he's addressing when he says, do we then make void the law through faith? In other words, does this doctrine of justification by faith alone, does this gospel that he's proclaiming, does it imply then that since our right standing with God in the courts of heaven is not based upon our performance or our obedience to the law of God, and we're no longer under the condemnation of the law, and we're no longer under the law as a means of justification, does it follow from that that the law is entirely void, that it's entirely irrelevant to the Christian, that it is uh, completely no longer in effect whatsoever. Is it void? Is it nullified? Is it obsolete? Are we no longer under the law in any sense, even as a a, a standard and a rule of life and of Christian sanctification? And he responds to this type of objection. He says, absolutely not. Certainly not. I think some translations even say, God forbid which is not technically accurate, but you can see what they're trying to say. The the translation should be, certainly not. Certainly not. And in a theological sense, for sure, God forbid anyone would fall into that type of error. Making void the law of God 
through faith, as if faith is opposed to the law in every sense of the word. As if faith means that we disregard the law of God and it no longer has any place in the life of the Christian. On the contrary, he says, we establish the law. On the contrary, when he says we, he says, we who proclaim this Christian gospel, we establish the law. He's not just saying that the Christian gospel allows us to have a high view of the law. He's not just saying the Christian gospel, well, it's not inconsistent with a high view of the law of God as a rule of life for Christian sanctification. No, he's actually saying we, by proclaiming the gospel, are establishing the law as a rule of life for Christian sanctification. Not as a means of being right with God. Not as a means of justification. Not as a source of condemnation that we're under the eternal wrath of God condemned for our sin. No, he's not saying that. But he's saying that by preaching the gospel of God's free grace, by preaching justification by faith alone, we are positively establishing the role of the law as a rule of life for Christian sanctification. And so if we were to summarize the doctrine that Paul is setting forth here, he's saying this, that a proper understanding of the gospel serves to establish, or we could say reinforce, God's moral law as a rule of life for Christian sanctification over against all forms of antinomianism. A proper understanding of the gospel serves to establish or reinforce God's moral law as a rule of life for Christian sanctification over against all forms of antinomianism. Well, let's seek to understand and unpack this doctrine. First, we we look at a proper understanding of the gospel. We've already spent some time on that. Hopefully, it's fresh in our minds. The doctrine of justification by faith alone. But you see, when we understand the gospel in a holistic way, we understand that the doctrine of justification by faith alone is not the be-all, end-all of salvation. God does not only save us from the guilt of sin, but He also saves us from the power of sin. You see, when Adam sinned, he received guilt. He had guilt for his sin. God condemned him for his sin. In fact, God warned that in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Dying, you shall die. You'll begin to die physically, and you will die spiritually. You'll be dead in trespasses and sins, so that when you exit this life, if you're still dead spiritually, you'll enter the second death, eternal death in hell. But you see, all these things, spiritual death, are a consequence of the guilt of Adam's sin. In the day you eat of it, when you contract that guilt, then your punishment will be You'll begin to die physically, but also spiritual death and depravity. So the power of sin to bring us under bondage, the power of sin to wreak havoc in our lives, the total depravity that we all come into this world with by nature, conceived and born in sin, that total depravity is a judicial punishment of God because of the guilt of Adam's sin. Adam's guilt is imputed to us, but also the punishment on mankind of spiritual death leading to eternal death. Now, justification by faith alone functions in this way in salvation that uh, before 
God lets us out of the prison of the bondage of sin, He first pardons us from the guilt of our offense. If you can follow the logic there. Right? When somebody is guilty and they're sentenced to prison and they're put in shackles, first they must be pardoned and then they're let out of prison. So if the guilt of sin is dealt with by way of pardon, that leads to liberation from the, the enslaving power and the incarcerating power of the bondage of sin. And so everyone who's justified or pardoned legally and the guilt of sin is removed, therefore then the punishment, the consequence of sin is removed through Christian sanctification. That we're liberated from sin. We're set free from sin because the guilt has been removed. And, and of course, uh, now you, you, could, you could push back on this and say, well, technically sanctification of our nature begins before justification, right? Because we're regenerated so that we can believe and receive justification. You hear this argument sometimes uh, from advocates of the federal vision and various other false teachings. They say, well, sanctification or regeneration begins and it produces faith and then we're justified. Well, in the same sense that if a prisoner was going to receive his pardon from the governor on the front lawn of the, in front of the prison, they would let him out of prison to go onto the front lawn to receive his pardon. But it's really the fact that he was going to be pardoned that's the reason that he was let out of prison to go receive his pardon. So the fact is that it's, it's because of justification and the judicial benefits of Christ's righteousness that we have the change of nature, the regeneration, the sanctification, the liberation from the power of sin. God liberates us from the guilt of sin so that He may liberate us from the power of sin. And so justification by faith alone is a means to the end of the purpose of redemption which is that God has predestined us to be holy and blameless before Him in love. So justification is a means to the end. It's a foundational point in Christian salvation, but it is a means to the end of liberating us then from the bondage of sin and enabling us to have that holiness by which we will commune with God. So the judicial benefit leads to the existential benefit, or you could say the change of our nature. The righteousness of Christ imputed legally leads to the righteousness of Christ imparted by the Holy Spirit through Christian sanctification. That's a proper understanding of the gospel. That's why Paul uh, begins with justification in this epistle to the Romans, and then he moves on to sanctification. Chapter 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? He goes on to say that he who has been justified has been freed from sin. So we've been freed from the shackles, from the bondage, from the power and influence of sin through our justification. In other words, it sets the stage for our sanctification, whereby we are liberated from sin. Romans 7, verse 4, he says, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another. So the law is no longer your means of justification and right standing before God, 
It's Christ, your bridegroom. You're, you're no longer in covenant with Adam. You're in covenant with Christ. You're no longer in covenant with the law. You're in covenant with the Lord Jesus Christ. To Him who was raised from the dead. What's the purpose of this marriage? Well, what's the purpose of marriage in general? One of the purposes is that we would be fruitful and multiply. You see the imagery here. That we're united to Christ as our spiritual head and husband. That we should bear fruit to God. And the word should there does not mean, well, maybe we will, maybe we won't. But we should. No, it's actually a necessary cause. It's a cause and effect that we're united to Christ in our justification to pave the way for fruitful sanctification, that we should bear fruit to God. So we're pardoned from sin's guilt so that we may be set free from sin's bondage. This is a proper understanding of the gospel. Now, we've said a proper understanding of the gospel serves to establish God's moral law as a rule of life for Christian sanctification. Well, what do we mean by God's moral law? Well, this is the law of God that was written on the heart of Adam and Eve at their creation, in their conscience. They were created in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. I'm going to look at some verses on that in just a second, but it's it's the, the blueprint the universal standard of righteousness in which man was created. This same blueprint was revealed in substance at Mount Sinai in the Ten Commandments, our duties toward God and our duties toward our neighbor. This standard of righteousness, this moral law, was expounded by the Lord Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount as He explained not merely the external but the internal spiritual implications of this universal standard of righteousness. Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but I'm going to bring out the full meaning. That's what He means when He says fulfill the law. And He proceeds to bring out the full meaning of that law of God. Of course, He fulfilled the law of God through His obedience and suffering and so on. But in that passage, He's talking about the full explanation and exposition of the moral law of God. That's what you see in the Sermon on the Mount. You see Jesus also summarizing God's moral law in the two great commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And it's this law that we find contained essentially in the entire Bible. Every command that God gives in the Bible with respect to our duty toward Him and our duty toward our neighbor is part and parcel of this moral law of God. There are ceremonial laws in the Old Testament. There are civil laws of Moses. There are various other things. But fundamentally, when you see God commanding His people regarding their duties toward Him and their duties toward their neighbor, this is intrinsically linked to the law of God. So we look at the whole Bible to know the the revealed will of God. This reflects the character of God. This reflects the character of Jesus Christ. This is the law of God that the Holy Spirit writes on the hearts of His people. This is the moral law of God. Now, is it the case that Paul is speaking here of the moral law? Some have questioned this. In our text, he says, do we then make void the law through faith? Well, what law is he speaking of? Is he talking about circumcision? You know, he mentioned the circumcised and the uncircumcised in the previous verse. Is he speaking of the ceremonial law of Israel? Some would make that case. 
But the fact of the matter is that he's speaking of the moral law of God. Even in verse 30, he's just using circumcision as a way of describing the Jews and Gentiles. This was the common way of speaking. The Jews are the circumcised, the Gentiles are the uncircumcised. But the substance of his point is that the Jews will not be justified by their own righteousness. That's what they had been claiming. Of course, they incorporated the ceremonies, but fundamentally, if you go back to chapter 2, why did the Jews think that they were right with God? They thought they were right with God, verses 17 through 24, because they know the moral law of God. Uh, You can see verse 21, "...you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal..." do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And so on. He's dealing there with moral commandments. The Pharisees thought they were morally righteous in the sight of God, and certainly the circumcision of the law enhanced that, but fundamentally, they thought they were right with God on the basis of their own moral works. Not stealing, not committing adultery, not committing idolatry. That was their mindset. In addition, in this couple of chapters, the Apostle Paul focuses on the moral law. You can see it crystal clear, chapter 2, verse 14. Chapter 2, verse 14. This whole section dealing with hearing the law, doing the law, and so on, centers around the law that was written on the hearts of the Gentiles, the people who didn't even have the ceremonial law. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. Now, did the Gentiles have the ceremonies written on their hearts? Was their conscience, as Gentiles who never saw the law of Moses in their lives, was their conscience informed by matters of circumcision and sacrifice and ceremonial food restrictions, that's nonsense. Nobody would interpret it that way. The law Paul's speaking of is the law that was written on the hearts of Adam and Eve and of which a remnant is written on the hearts of the consciences even of people who never saw a Bible. So it's the moral law, the law that's written on the hearts of the Gentiles, the law that the Jews think they've kept because they don't steal or commit adultery. The law that's violated in the section that we saw in chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul quotes from the Psalms. He says, there's none righteous, no, not one. And he goes on to describe immorality. He describes violations not of the ceremonial law, but he describes violations of the moral law. People who don't seek God. People who don't do what is good. People who speak evil things, poisonous words, mouths full of cursing and bitterness. They shed blood. They're filled with destruction and misery. And they don't promote peace. They don't fear God. These are moral issues, not ceremonial. So it's the moral law of God that we're dealing with, of which he says in chapter 13 that uh, love is the fulfillment of the law. And he goes on to list a bunch of the Ten Commandments. Don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness. This is the law that Paul's primarily concerned about in this passage, the moral law of God. So, a proper understanding of the gospel serves to establish or reinforce 
God's moral law as a rule of life for Christian sanctification. Well, what do we mean by a rule of life for Christian sanctification? Well, we've almost in some sense already dealt with this, but we mean very clearly that although it is a standard for righteousness in the Christian life, this is what we ought to be striving for. This defines for us the difference between righteousness and unrighteousness. It defines for us the difference between obeying God and disobeying God. It's a summary of God's requirements for us as we seek to bring forth in gratitude new obedience, uh, seeking to honor and glorify the God who saved us from our sins. We do it in accordance with the instruction we receive from the law of God. It says do this, don't do that in terms of our thoughts, words, and deeds. It's the standard. It's the blueprint. But it's not a covenant of works. We've already been justified through the finished work of Christ. We're already right with God. We already have an inheritance with all the saints in glory. But, but, in our sanctification, we ought to be striving to obey God's law. Not for justification, but for sanctification. So it's a rule of life. It has authority to command us. I mean, if we're children of God, a father has authority over his children, right? I mean, we already are subject to God's law as creatures, but all the more as children of God, our heavenly father has authority to command us. That's the moral law of God. If we're disciples of Jesus, then our teacher has authority to disciple us, authority to correct us, to rebuke us, to teach and train us and equip us for every good work. If He's our Lord and King, what King, what Lord doesn't have authority to command His subjects? That's the moral law of God. So in one sense, all the more are we subject to the law of God as a rule of life for Christian sanctification. All the more. Because as Christians, we're not just creatures, but we're children with an authoritative Heavenly Father. We're disciples of our master, teacher, the Lord Jesus. We're subjects of his kingdom. So if we're Christians, all the more. The the, the gospel, a proper understanding of the gospel, reinforces and establishes God's moral law as a rule of life for Christian sanctification. 1 John 2, 1 says, I write this letter to you so that you will not sin. So that you will not sin. He says, if you do sin then you have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. But he says, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. He goes on in chapter 3 to say sin is lawlessness. 1 John 3, 3 and 4. He says, those who are looking by faith to the return of Christ, when they'll see Him as He is, he says they purify themselves as as Christ is pure, So they're actively striving for purity. And he says, what is sin? It is transgression of the law. Lawlessness. Lawlessness. And and he goes on in speaking of the Christian life in terms of our love for God and love for others. Listen to what he says here. Listen to how countercultural this is in the church today. 1 John 5.2 By this we know that we love the children of God. How do we know that we love the children of God? What's the standard? Because you hear people saying, well, you know, um, it's all about love, not about the law. It's about relationship, not rules. We shouldn't be concerned with the law of God. We should only be concerned with 
Loving other people. Well, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. So what's the standard of whether or not you really love the people around you? Are you keeping God's commandments toward them? Do you love God and are you loving other people as His image bearers, if not also His own dear children? By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. John knows a thing or two about human nature. He knows that we're going to be tempted, like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, to think that obedience to God's commandments is slavery. And really, it's just a means to the end of obtaining a young goat to party with our friends. My, my friends, he knows that tendency of the unconverted or of the backsliding Christian, and he, he rebukes it. He refutes it. He says his commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are the sum and substance of love for God and love for others. This is the Christian life. This is a rule of life for Christian sanctification. And we've said that a proper understanding of the gospel serves to establish God's moral law as a rule of life for Christian sanctification. What do we mean by establish? In what sense does a proper view of the gospel establish or reinforce God's law as a rule of life for Christian sanctification? How does that happen? What happens in a number of ways? First, it happens by way of organic persuasion, right? God shows His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Our sins essentially nailed Jesus Christ to the tree and we see God's love and we perceive His goodness toward us. We perceive His infinite mercy and grace toward us. We perceive Him as the Lord our God who brought us up out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. In other words, the God who redeemed us. The God who has saved us. Uh, And we're organically persuaded, a willing people in the day of His power. We want to honor this God who has done so much for us. We're filled with gratitude. There's organic persuasion and motivation. Paul says the love of Christ constrains me it persuades me, and it's an infallible persuasion. Psalm 130, verse 4, there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. We sense God's love and His mercy, and we tremble at the presence of such a merciful God. Therefore, beloved Paul says, 2 Corinthians 7, 1, because we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. We're persuaded by His love. We're persuaded by His goodness. Why? Because His love and His goodness shows us who He is. It's not just, well, God did something for me, so I guess I'm obligated to do something for Him. But you see, His love is not just what He's done, it's who He is. So we see the love that He showered upon us and upon all His believing people, and we're drawn in not just to thank Him and be grateful, but to adore Him. To adore Him. We love Him because He first loved us. That does not simply mean, you know, like the, the, you know, the Backstreet Boys theology, I don't care who you are, what you've done, where you're from, as long as you love me. That's not Christianity. 
Christianity is actually saying, listen, God loves me. And that means God is love. God is beautiful unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. It's His character that shows forth in His grace and mercy. And it's His character that I love and that persuades me to want to honor Him. Titus 2.12, teaching us, this is the Gospel, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. It goes on to say that Christ gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself His own special people, zealous for good works. This is what the Gospel teaches. This is what the Gospel promotes and persuades us to embrace. Also, secondly... How does the gospel reinforce and establish God's moral law as a rule of life for Christian sanctification? Through spiritual liberation. As we've seen, through the grace of of justification, we're set free from the claims of God's judicial wrath against mankind, which causes spiritual depravity, and we now are liberated. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Romans 8, verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. We're liberated. So it's not just that it's grateful obedience, we're persuaded, but the grace of the Gospel liberates us to be a new creature who is no longer required to sin, as it were. There's a necessity of our sinful nature where we just can't do what is good. We can't do what is righteous. No. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. The truth has made us free, and we're sanctified in the truth of God's Word. We're set free. And we need to believe that. If you're a Christian, you believe that. That's part of your saving faith is to believe, I don't have to keep sinning. I don't have to keep losing my temper. I don't have to keep engaging in sinful lust. I don't have to keep doing these things because the Spirit of the Lord is within me and therefore I am free. Free from the bondage of sin. And of course, thirdly, there's sovereign transformation. We're not just set free as if then, well, we can do one or the other, but the Holy Spirit sovereignly transforms us We often quote Romans 8.28 in a general sense. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God to those who are called according to His purpose. We say, well, God works all things together for good. Yes, that's true, but the good there that it's referring to specifically is not just some generic good, but it goes on to define the specific good plan that God has for our lives. Verse 29, for whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren moreover whom he predestined these he also called whom he called these he also justified and whom he justified these he also glorified so justification is just one pearl on the necklace the golden chain of salvation And at the beginning, you have God's love and His predestination that we would be conformed. So we're not just set free, 
but there is a necessity. There is a sovereign transformation. God has predestined, dear believer, that you will be like Jesus day by day by day. Your circumstances in your life, He uses these things. You learn obedience through suffering like Christ did. He chastens you. He gives you joy and peace, leads you beside still waters, restores your soul. He uses these things in His sovereign plan to transform you. And it is absolutely certain. Conform to the image of His Son. And and finally, there's a radical reorientation. There's a radical reorientation of our entire mindset. The unconverted person living in fleshliness and carnality, we're told, cannot be subject to the law of God. Romans 8, verse 6, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal man is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So the true believer, having been set free, is subject to the law of God in a way that the unconverted person cannot be. The carnal mind hates God hates His law, and refuses to be subject to it. But the true believer, having been set free by the Holy Spirit through the blood of Christ, and so on and so forth, the the true Christian, dead with Christ, risen with Christ, a new creature in Christ, the Christian is subject, willingly subject to the law of God. So that in uh, Romans chapter 12, Paul can say, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies. In other words, you willingly submit yourself. You present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Okay, That doesn't mean that you're going to understand God's eternal plan and be able to predict predict the future, right? The will of God in reference there is speaking of God's revealed will, His moral law. You will become more and more discerning and adept at knowing and doing the will of God from the heart in light of His many mercies. So you're no longer under the dominion of sin and therefore reckon yourself dead to sin Offer yourself freely. There's a radical reorientation. I already mentioned this in the previously in prefacing one of the psalms we sang, and I think I already alluded to it briefly in the sermon so far, but you see a contrast here between the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son and the penitent prodigal himself. Once the prodigal is converted and comes to his senses, he, he heads back to the father's house. Now, we know the father runs to meet him, but you get the sense that he can't get there quick enough. He's empty. He's hungry. Nobody is helping him out. He's completely alienated and isolated and forsaken, and he heads back home to his father's house where there is bread enough and to spare, and he's willing even to be the lowliest servant in the house. The father restores him as a son, but he'd be content to take the lowest place, to be a doorkeeper in the house of God. He'd be content. He views it as a privilege to obey his father's commandments and to serve his loving father. But not so the elder brother in Luke 15. Not so the elder brother who says, I've obeyed all these commandments. I've never transgressed your commandments even once. And 
he, he uses a word for service there, which really is a word for slavery. I've been slaving away, obeying your commandments. And he doesn't view that as a reward in itself. He wants a young goat to party with his friends. That's the carnal mind. That's the, the unconverted mind. The kind of people that Malachi rebukes in Malachi 3 verse 14. Who say it is useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts? It is useless, they say, to serve God. My friends, serving God is the reward. It is the benefit. Go to the last couple chapters of Revelation. Heaven is service to God. It says that there will be no more curse. His servants shall serve Him. If serving God is useless and undesirable, and it's not delightful, it's a burden, then you're not going to... I mean, you're not going to have much fun in heaven. You're not going to have much joy and delight in heaven because in heaven, His servants shall serve Him. Right? That's what it is for the Christian to, to have this reorientation of mind to be able to say, listen, serving God and being conformed to Christ, that's the benefit. Right? That's not the broccoli and then I have to pour on a bunch of uh, you know, uh, cheddar cheese or something to, to make it go down the hatch. That's the, that's the cheese. That's the blessing. That's the dessert. The, the law of God, Christian sanctification, this is a great benefit. Uh, this is the substance of heaven, conformity to Christ. See, when you have this reorientation, you begin to view the law of God differently. You begin to view the law of God as the law of Christ, who loved you and gave himself for you as, as the transcript of his character, of his life, of his example. This is when it says he's washing his bride with water by the word. That's what he's doing. He's cleansing us and sanctifying us in God's commandments to keep them. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. When you look at the infinite love of Christ, it constrains you. Paul says, it's not as though I'm not under law to God, I'm under law to God in Christ, 1 Corinthians 9.21. You begin to view the law of God as a law of love. It's not about rules, it's about a relationship. Well, uh, you know, that sounds like something an adulterous husband would want to, to say, right? Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's not really about rules. No, a, a good relationship has rules, right? Rules are essential to a relationship to give it order and, and, and to give it direction. This is a law of love. It's rules in our relationship with God. You begin to view it. This is how I express my love for God. It's how I express uh, my, my love for God and others, you begin to view it as a perfect law of liberty, as James calls it. This is the law that enables me to live as I've been created, to glorify and enjoy God, to love Him, to love others. This is the, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, the law of liberty. This is a precious gift. Psalm 119, the psalmist repeatedly prays, Lord, Open my eyes that I may behold your law, the wondrous things of your law. He says, Lord, give me your law graciously. Grant me your law and grace. It's a gracious gift that God has given. We sang in uh, Psalm 147 that God has given his law not to just any other nation, but to his people. What a privilege. What a blessing. 
What good news? You see, when you understand the law in Christian sanctification, you understand that the law is good news. The law, in terms of sanctification, is gospel. It's good news to have the law. It's good news to have this law that Psalm 19 says rejoices the heart, sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. This gracious gift that's more valuable than much fine gold. It's good news. It's a cause for delight. It's a source of refreshment. The tree planted by streams of water is the believer who meditates on the law of God day and night. The Spirit uses the Word of God, and particularly the law of God in Christian sanctification to refresh us, to nourish us, to encourage us. Why? Because it's the transcript of Christ's character. It's what He did for us, and it's what He's doing in us, and we will be conformed to it. It's a source of refreshment. The the law of God uh, converts the soul. Psalm 19, verse 7, refreshes, restores the soul. The good shepherd restores your soul. How does he do it? One of the ways is through the law of God, writing it on your heart. Now, this is over against all forms of antinomianism. And I know I'm running late here, but let me just make a few uh, points here. Over against all forms of antinomianism, uh, the word namas where, where we see this, this uh, in the middle of this word, nomian, is the word for law. Antinomianism is anti-lawism. It is those who seek to make void the law of God, and it really includes, in terms of church history and historical theology, any tendency to minimize the role of God's moral law for Christian sanctification. Any tendency to minimize the role of God's moral law for Christian sanctification. Typically, It's those who emphasize, as Paul addresses here, faith and justification in a way that minimizes uh, laborious, diligent effort in sanctification. Okay, so they emphasize justification to the detriment of sanctification. Uh, Or they emphasize God's sovereign grace and election and His decree, His decretal will, and downplay God's revealed will in His moral law for Christian sanctification. Uh, or they, they set the new covenant over against the old. There are various ways that this is done, but it's always uh, such that it minimizes the role of God's moral law for Christian sanctification. Now, you can see there are a number of forms of this. There's dispensational antinomianism where people say, well, the Old Testament was about law, the New Testament is about grace. But you see, Jesus addresses this directly in Matthew 5, 17, in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, do not think that I came to abolish the law. He says, I didn't come to abolish it, I didn't come to make it void, I didn't come to nullify it. And he's speaking here of the same moral law that he expounds in the various commandments in the remaining sermon. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle will by any means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. He says, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. That's the New Testament church. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So, Jesus is reinforcing in the New Testament the law of God. Read Jeremiah 31. What is 
at the core of the new covenant. It's that God to a greater degree and to, to a greater extent will write his law on our hearts. Jeremiah 31 verse 33. That's the passage that should define our view of the new covenant. It's a period in which the law of God is even more emphasized because it's written on our hearts to, to a greater extent. More could be said. Um, also, uh, and I have, I have two more of these that I want to mention. Sovereign grace antinomianism. Sovereign grace antinomianism. This is the view as we see in Romans. Paul has to deal with it again and again. Romans 3, 7, if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? In other words, God's eternal decree brings good things out of evil things, and therefore, are these things that I'm committing really evil in any sense? We're taking the decretal will of God and minimizing the moral law of God, the preceptive will of God. Paul is dealing with this. People who emphasize sovereign grace, God works it all for good, then maybe we shouldn't sorrow over sin. Maybe it's not such a big deal. Maybe we shouldn't be as concerned with our personal obedience. Maybe we just say God works it for good. So I'll do my best, but eh, big deal. God's going to work it for good no matter what. So it's not uh, such a big problem. That is sovereign grace antinomianism. Uh, Romans 9 verse 19 why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? So they emphasize the decretal will of God at the expense of his preceptive will or his commandments. And there's this tendency in overemphasizing God's eternal decree to look at the unconditional nature of God's eternal decree of salvation and to say, well, my obedience or disobedience in my Christian life does not affect God's eternal decree of my salvation. That's, that decree is unconditional, unconditional election. My obedience or disobedience can't affect God's eternal decree of my salvation. And that's true. That's true. But you see, because of the overemphasis on God's decree, this begins to impact the, the perspective on other aspects of the Christian life, such as uh, our daily experience in the Christian life. So my obedience or disobedience can't change or impact God's decree of election, which is unconditional, but it can impact my fellowship with God, right? It can impact my assurance. It can impact if I'm living in sin and rejecting the convicting power of the Holy Spirit in my life and sinning against God again and again and again, I'm grieving the Holy Spirit. That is going to impact my experience in the Christian life, my fellowship with God. Uh, we see it in Corinth. People come to the communion table, and their ability to commune intimately with God in a blessed way is conditional upon coming with clean hands and a pure heart. When they do it unworthily, they don't commune. It's not even the Lord's Supper. So our obedience affects many aspects of the Christian life, not God's eternal decree, but it affects our experience, our fellowship, our assurance. We know, John says, we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. So, so if I say, well, uh, me not loving the brethren doesn't really affect uh, my assurance, I'm contradicting what John says. I know I've passed from death to life partly because I'm loving the brethren. If I'm living in an unloving way, 
Peter says, if I'm not dwelling with my wife according to understanding, God will not hear my prayer. It will hinder my prayer. That seems pretty clear. Your fellowship with God on a daily basis, even as a believer, your ability to discern your own calling and election, being sure, is partly dependent upon your Christian obedience. This is something that has a cause and effect relationship in your real relationship with Jesus Christ. And finally, evangelical antinomianism. Those who say, listen, you're justified. Don't worry about it. Those who take the grace of God and turn it into licentiousness, who use it as an excuse to have no urgency in seeking to obey the law of God. You're justified, just rest in that. Lost is the emphasis on the urgency of Christian sanctification. Lost is any emphasis upon effort and diligence. They say, well, in your justification, you're just receiving Christ's righteousness, sit back, relax, and sanctification will be no different. My friends, in sanctification, faith works. It works by love. Yes, you're justified, but you ought to be all the more diligent in your effort. They say, well, you're justified. You shouldn't grieve over sin. You should simply rejoice in the righteousness of Christ. A Christian should never grieve over sin, they say. That, that's unbelief. Nonsense. If you understand the grace and mercy of God, you'll be like David and you'll be sorrowing over your sin and you'll be asking for God to restore your joy. But if you truly are saved by Christ, you're going to be grief-stricken at having offended Him. Uh, They pretend that there's no progress in the Christian life. They say, well, we're all equally justified, and then they act as if no one in the life of the church is any more or less mature or godly or holy than anyone else. Again, they impose justification on sanctification. They remove any emphasis on the law of God as a, a measuring stick of holiness and maturity in the church. And they remove the cause and effect relationship between our response to God's Word and the the quality and well-being of our daily Christian life. So in that sense, they're very similar to the sovereign grace antinomians. Now my friends, in closing, do you love the law of God? Do you have the legal spirit of the elder brother who finds God's law burdensome? Or do you have the gospel spirit of the penitent prodigal who is thrilled just to be a servant? just to have the commandments, just to have the marching orders, to be the lowliest grunt in the military. You're on the front lines, you have the lowliest rank, and yet you're thrilled to be in God's army, to be a servant of the King, to be at the table of the Lord. As Mephibosheth said, your servant is a dead dog, but but he says, I delight to dwell at the King's table. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give thanks for Your law. We thank You that Christ has fulfilled it on our behalf through His death and resurrection. We thank You that He has fulfilled it by teaching us the true meaning of it and giving us His Holy Spirit to conform us to His image and likeness, even according to Your eternal plan. Increase our faith. Give us wisdom. Help us not to be imbalanced or turn to the right or to the left or emphasize one truth over another, but enable us 
to walk in your ways, to know your truth, to be set free, to live a balanced Christian life, loving you and loving others according to your law. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.